Hello and welcome back. Today I'm talking to Dominic Frisbee. Dominic. Hello Douglas. How are you? I'm very well and we're sitting right by the tennis courts where I used to play as a young man with my dad. Of course, being locked down London, the tennis courts are strictly shut. I know, it's very risky playing tennis. The only thing you can do in the tennis courts is, is, is film issues like this. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I mean, I, you what do you know, make of it all? Well, I, I, I don't see how playing tennis makes you high COVID risk. You know, you, it's not, there's no close contact on the tennis court and you're outdoors. One thing I, I find quite extraordinary is that I always thought this country was quite liberal and people valued their liberty. You, we have phrases like a, an Englishman's home is his castle. Well, it seems now that we've quite passively rolled over and we, we allow government to tell us that we've got to stay in our castles. We've got to, we're on a form of house arrest. Well, what do you make of it? All? I, Listen, I mean, COVID's real. It's not. It's not made up. It's. It's not a conspiracy. But, you know, at a certain point, you have to delegate responsibility to the individuals, which is what mm -hmm. Sweden did. Mm -hmm. And of course, Sweden locked down quite naturally all the individuals who were at risk locked down. You look at a country like Argentina, which had a very strict lockdown. And in those kind of countries, the laws aren't made to be adhered to. They're just a guideline, <laughs> and uh, nobody respected the lockdown. And Argentina's got terrible, terrible outbreaks of COVID. Um, the evidence, whenever there's a crisis, government power extends. So if you have a war, for example, government power extends in the time of the war. We had um, uh, licensing laws at 11 o'clock as a result of the First World War. Taxes increase, and they never go back after the crisis has passed to where they were before the crisis began. 11 o'clock licensing laws stayed with us forever. 70 mile an hour speed limit. Was, came in to deal with the oil crisis of the 1970s. We still have it today. Do you think we're going to be wearing masks in a decade's time? I'm very worried that we are. Maybe not in a decade's time, but I just think, you go to somewhere like Hong Kong and, and Japan and places like that, masks are very much a normal part of everyday existence. It goes all the way back to SARS and things like that. And actually in Japan, it's rather nice, the, the, the um, culture of masks, because if I have a cold, at work, I would wear a mask into work out of respect for the people that I'm working with. So that's rather a nice case of individual responsibility dictating that I should wear my mask out of consideration for others. But this sort of forced mask thing, um, you know, it, it's not going to go away until Covid corona deaths, de deaths reach zero, which they will never reach. Um, now. In a moment, we're going to talk about your work as a comedian. You're uh, a, a very famous stand-up comic. I don't know about famous, but um, I'm certainly a stand-up comic. But you're also actually a very well-known, highly respected financial journalist, financial writer. And a constant theme that runs through both your comedy and your economic work is this idea of government taking control and never relinquishing it. Um, You've, you've written a book as well about this. Um, it's ostensibly about taxation, but it's also the tale of how people in positions of power have basically suckered the rest of us to pay for them. Tell us a bit about your book. Well, the book's called Daylight Robbery, and we get the expression daylight robbery, it's thought from the window tax. Oh, really? introduced, yeah. Of course, when the government taxed windows, people yeah. said you're taxing daylight. Yeah, <laughs> daylight and fresh air. And Charles Dickens was a great, uh, the adage free as air is, is he, great railer against it. The, the, the um, window tax was brought in in the late 1690s to, re, um, to replace the half tax. Um, half tax, when, the, um, in, when William of Orange invaded, um, uh, half tax 
you would That's have a fireplace. The fireplaces. Everyone um, who had a fireplace was, paid was taxed on their fireplaces, and it was and it was it goes all the way back to Norman times, but it became statute in about 1640, and the English hated it because twice a year tax inspectors would come into their houses to count the number of fireplaces, and it was considered a violation of the Englishman's sacred privacy, to use the expression. And when William of Orange came, it was one of one of the ways by which William of Orange and, and Mary were ingratiated with the newly conquered people was to get rid of this half tax and um, it was part of the English Bill of Rights and then of course government ran out of money and thought, how do we raise money and they had the idea of taxing windows instead because the beauty of the windows tax at least originally was that you could walk past somebody's house you didn't need to go into the house exactly ah. so there was no engagement with the taxpayer ah. required. so out of deference to people's love of privacy, the government had to give up taxing what was in the house and tax what they could assess from outside. Absolutely, and it okay. was considered a progressive tax because the, the richer you are, the more windows you have. Yep. But of course, um, it didn't work like that because you had big houses in the country with lots of windows and, and houses in city centres where the net worth of the individual who owned the house was much higher, but he paid much lower levels of tax because he had fewer windows. Yep. And like so many government interventions, the people who suffered most by it were the poorest because they lived in tenement blacks blocks and the taxes fell on the landlord and in order to avoid paying the tax the landlords blocked up so all the windows. So you got windowless poorly ventilated dwellings and you got um, presumably the viruses of the day. <laughs> yeah the, all the outbreaks of, of disease in the industrial revolution and just after in all the city centres were made far worse by these damp cramped windowless now, dwellings. Your book is full of these really fascinating insights about taxation. Have you got any other um, anecdotes about them? You... I've got an endless <laughs> supply of them Douglas and I shall regale this interview with little tidbits from the story of taxation. But one of the great themes of this book is that behind every great event, every momentous event in history, every war, every conquest, everything, you will find a tax story, often an untold one, without which that story would not have unfolded in the way that it did. And the obvious one's the American Revolution. Every single revolution, uh, yes, no taxation without representation, but every single revolution is arising up against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the tax system. Every single one. Every conquest is about taking control of the tax base, the land, the labour, the produce, the profit. Every war is funded by taxation. Now, that's looking backwards. Looking forwards, are we going to see a big change in the ability of the states to raise revenue? Is, is it going to be more difficult for the state to raise revenue? because people can avoid tax legitimately? Or are we gonna see the state actually reaching into every mobile phone bank account and taxing us before we've... Well, it's gonna get simultaneously easier and harder. And, and the lesson of history is that there's this, this eternal dance between tax collector and taxpayer. And it's been going on since um, you know ancient Mesopotamia when taxes were first levied and, and the first written records we have are tax records. So your know, handwriting actually came about as a mean is accounting actually. But tax way of keeping tabs on the people you're going to tax. Absolutely. And but one of the ways, I mean, governments at the moment have got a big problems on their hands, you know, because they're spending infinitely more than they take in a tax. I was going to say, haven't they just avoided the tax problem altogether by just borrowing and, and worrying for uh, for a future generation? To well, worry I, I describe debt as a tax on the future. I mean, if you think we only just five years ago finished paying off our World War One debts which is just, I mean, I can't believe that my tax money was going to pay World War One debts, which is not my fault. <laughs> and I suppose in a way it was because it created the society in which we live today, but anyway. But 
but so debt is a tax on the future but the, the most um, penetrating way if you like by which we're going to be taxed today is this is debasing the currency inflation which which Milton Friedman called inflation without uh, taxation without legislation mm -hmm. and you know quantitative easing printing money only a couple of days ago, the British Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced fifty billion pounds, so, and everyone, everyone sort of dismissed this as, as a sort of matter of fact. But it's a vast amount of money, and it, he doesn't have that money. It's my daughter and her children who are going to pay for it. Absolutely, and the MMT uh, brigade will tell you that it doesn't matter that we don't have that money. The government Modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory. We can create that money now, and 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 tax later to, to recoup the revenue that's that they theory. would say that wouldn't they? <laughs> of course they are but it's 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 a huge step in the direction of more government control because and where we're going now is central bank digital currency CBDCs they're called and you will see and that one of the arguments that will get put, put forward is like the ECB will issue its own digital currency and it circumvents banking altogether and you will have your account with the central bank and, you will, and your UBI, your universal basic income, will be paid so, by the central on. bank. Central banks are creating what is in effect a universal payment ledger. So that That's what they're going towards, yeah. The currency they create is no longer a, a, a unit of cash or um, a, a, a digital accounting unit in a bank. It, they create a sort of all-embracing architecture of payments with them at the centre. Yeah, you will see... How terrifying. It is terrifying and you'll see, you know, euros and pounds, but you also, will also see international currencies. And the idea is, is that, you know, it reduces forex and cross-border payments, it reduces the influence of the dollar on the global trade and so on. But Why is that uh, a good thing? <laughs> well, having, it's good having, and bad. Having I mean, the dollar as the number one currency has led to 40 years of peace, prosperity and globalisation. Well, it's good and bad. I mean, it was, gold is probably better. But anyway, the, this is where we're definitely going. And, but the really terrifying thing is then that's, that is how negative interest rates will be imposed. And negative interest rates is like, it's directly taxing your, your wealth. And that is one of the ways by which um, governments are going to fund what they do. And it, it, it so gives you tremendous have... power, even more power to central banks. So in effect, if you've got in your bank account any money, the government will be able to help themselves directly to a percentage of it. They're not just going to do what they normally do, which is inflate the value of they'll it away. They'll, so they'll inflate the value of it through inflation and they will help themselves to it yeah. through negative interest rates. Yeah, I don't use the word inflation as, as often as perhaps, because inflation has come to mean rising prices. Yeah. And we've lost the original meaning of the word, which was the inflation of the money supply, yeah. which leads, which has the consequence of higher prices. Yeah. And in fact, official measures of inflation only measure about 13% of money supply growth. Mm -hmm. um, consumer goods which are prone to the deflationary forces of increased productivity they don't measure asset prices they don't measure house prices which is a lot of where newly created money goes so I call it de debasement of money or money debasement or currency debasement but yeah it's the same thing but what governments are doing this finding out new ways to fleece us technology also allows us to escape their currencies completely does I mean this is the other side think? of the coin uh, all the all these cryptocurrencies that are being being created and even gold the old form of gold itself you don't hold your gold in the central bank you can't be you can't be taxed on it I mean they can force you to declare what gold you have and then demand a wealth tax based on that I suppose but it's it's harder to 
impose. But yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of currencies like Bitcoin, which was deliberately designed to be a deflationary um, currency in the sense that, you know, if you ask me how many dollars, pounds, euros are going to be in existence in 20 years time, I couldn't tell you, but I can tell you exactly how many Bitcoins there will be. And as a result, because it is finite and programmed and scheduled, we know what money supply will be. and the purchasing power of Bitcoin increases over time. Quick question. And ever that is your hedge against all this. Ever since I studied A-level economics, people have always said, they still say it in the pages of the Financial Times and The Economist, that a, good, a little bit of inflation is a good thing. Why? Surely falling prices is actually a better thing. Take, for example, my, my, um, my little Fitbit here. It's a cheap one. Um, I bought it for about 16 quid. When these ones first came out, they cost about 50 quid. Falling prices is, is good because it means that I can enjoy modern electronic uh, gadgets. Surely house prices rising, it's a bad thing because it means lots of people in their 20s can't afford a home. Surely we want to live in a world with moderate deflation. I could not agree more. And the 19th century in the UK saw one of the greatest periods of wage growth ever seen in all history. and consumer prices fell over the entire period of the 19th century. You know, inflation, debasing currency, whatever word you want to use, is a, the argument always gets used is it robs savers. The real victim is people on salaries because the, 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 the value of their money, of their earnings, decreases over time. Now the argument why deflation is bad and a little bit of inflation is good is that because if we have deflation, people delay purchases. So it's the whole argument about consumers need to spend rather than save, which is a, a different economic school of thought. And it's not one I agree with, but that is the argument. But I'm not even sure that people do put off buying things if prices fall. You know, there's loads of people who go out and buy the, the latest gadget for £2,000, even though they know in five years' time it's going to be 50 quid. They still the moment people are delaying buying houses because they can't the opposite, Exactly, the opposite happens. And, and, and the reason that deflation is seen as such a bad thing is that, particularly in the case of the UK, our, so much of our national wealth is built on house prices, which, and house prices, people talk about the problem is not enough houses are built. The bigger problem for me, if you look at the period from 1997 to 2007, um, uh, the amount of houses built was uh, uh, was higher than the population growth and including the amount of people that moved to this country. Really? They was, it was higher, but house prices tripled over that time. And then you look at the money supply, and the money supply tripled over that same time. People don't talk about the impact of, of newly created money on house prices. So and, and, and for me, the biggest, most criminal social problem we have in this country is overpriced housing. It's just robbing a generation. It's putting off having families. My um, uh, son's godfather is from New Hampshire and he's got a family home that he's looking to sell. And it's a three-bed family home in a nice town in New Hampshire um, with 60 acres of woodland and he's selling it for $200,000. You just couldn't buy a shoebox for that money. And you know, that house costs less than it would cost to build. And, and so the depreciation of that house since it was built is factored in. Actually, you look at these back. houses behind us, these flats were built um, in the uh, late 1800s and I think the original cost of these houses was something like 20 pounds a flat, something extraordinary. So that would have been, what, six months, six months wages for someone in those days? I don't know, but something on those kind of lines and a builder was able to build these mansion flats 
and make a profit selling them, but you know, they sh in theory, they should depreciate in value, but they don't, they appreciate because of location and restricted supply and all those other yeah. reasons. But the, 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 the biggest reason of all is, is, is deep, but actually, too, too much money in the system. To, to be fair, there's another reason. Mortgages barely existed when these houses were built. But you, you, know, you didn't need a mortgage to be able I think to... the mortgage was a sort of, which means the word mortgage means death grip. But it, it, I mean, people obviously borrowed money to buy, buy things, but the mortgage essentially only came into sort of the mainstream in the 1950s, I think, maybe the 1930s. And, you know, you put debt into the system, prices go up. So your, your book has come out. Um, I gather it's going very well because it's now out in paperback. It is out in paperback, yeah. Um, in the last week or so, I think. Fantastic. It's had very good reviews. Everyone likes it. I, I will I will try to add greatly to its sales by putting a link on here. Um, <laughs> you if you're much. watching you have to you have to you have to buy a copy. Um, now Can I just go on over one theme of the please. book and I'd like to talk to you about it is is when we watch a zombie film, we um, you have a thing called the zero patient. It's a, a trope of a lot of, of, of zombie films. It's the vir It's the point at which the virus started. It would be the bat in Wuhan in the take, yeah. case of coronavirus. And often the story of the zombie film is that the hero has to get to patient zero and either kill patient zero or get patient zero will provide the antidote that fixes everything. Yeah. And I have become convinced in the course of writing this book that a society's patient zero is its system of tax. You design a, a, a society by the way you tax it. You shape that society's destiny, whether it's going to be prosperous or poor, whether it's people are going to be free or subordinate. And you have all these political arguments raging at the moment, but nobody is zoning in on the zero patient, which is our, our system of tax. So if, like us, you want smaller government, you have to recognise that it doesn't matter who we vote for at election time, until we change the system of taxation and the ability of this parasitic class of bureaucrats and politicians to fleece us, nothing substantial is going to change. Absolutely. Every election is just an argument about two or three or four percent of GDP where it gets spent. It, you know, but we tax income very heavily. It's, it's, it's Fifty percent of government GDP is, is income tax. And, you know, if you're a young person starting out in life, all you have is your labour. And we tax that heavily. In addition to taxing a labour heavily, we then debase the money that he's paid with. So you're taxed twice. So in the well, old days, you taxed windows, you got fewer windows. Now you tax income, you get less income. Well, you do. And it's just a disincentive. It turns kids into, into slaves. And we need to, in my opinion, have much, much lower uh, levels of income tax. I mean, income tax goes all the way back to the tithe. You know, and, and the tithe goes all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia. Of course, in those days, you weren't, you didn't pay uh, your tax in money, you paid it in your labour or a share of your produce and so on. But it was always around about 10-15% the tithe, hence, and we they say the tithe because we have 10 fingers, that's, yeah. that's the thinking behind if it. only tax was 10%. Well yeah, but you look at somewhere like Hong Kong, whose tax code is, um, a, I think it's like 1.5% the length of the UK tax code, so that makes it maybe 70 times smaller. And Hong Kong tax revenue never exceeded 14% of GDP. The government ran a surplus every year for, for 60 years except two, I think is the statistic. And it's been the most incredible growth story of the second half of the 20th century. So much so that, that Singapore copied it, Taiwan copied it, Japan copied it to an extent, South Korea copied it. Now even um, China is copying it with things like Shenzhen and its tax-free zones. And you know, it's like there, the blueprint is there, copy it. And you know what's so frustrating? 
it was a British official who put that blueprint there. It was, and 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 he was quite, and, and he sort of did it. The English just didn't care. We were and a little we distracted. Were, this is post -war. Everyone else in the West was pursuing Keynesian policies. Yeah. Hong, Kong, Hong Kong was a sleepy little it fishing was, porch. And it was under the. If, if it had been in the wrong hands, that that whoever was in charge could have been um, deeply tyrannical. But it had John James Cowperthwaite, who's one of the greatest heroes of, of of modern economics, in my view. And he was an acolyte of Adam Smith. He slept with a copy of Wealth of Nations by his bed, apparently. And he just used to say, "Keynes wasn't writing with us in mind." That was his set phrase. Keynes wasn't writing about this in much. Cowperthwaite, I think I'm right in saying, also discouraged any of his government officials from ever collecting any official statistics because yeah. he believed it would only encourage them to meddle. Absolutely. <laughs> he, he's, if you want to, one of his turnaround stories, if you want to turn around a third world country and make us prosperous, the first thing you need to do is abolish the Office of, Gov of National Statistics, was his quote. And he hired, that he was under so much pressure to compile government statistics. Oh, Let me just finish. He yeah. hired a, a professor to compile them. And at this poor man, every sort of six months, a professor would come to him and go, I've got all the readings. And, and, and Cabotha would look at him and go, no, 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 this is wrong, this is wrong. And he just did it and just spun it out for 10 years. But and the poor man was a full guy. On, on a serious, serious note, I can think of two catastrophic decisions made by Western governments in the past decade and a half, two decades, as a consequence of overconfidence in dodgy data. One is these central bank economists who ran interest rates in a way that ended up tanking the banks, leading to the problems of 2006-2007. And the second is these epidemiologists who are shutting down our tennis courts here in Fulham and a lot more besides on the basis of dodgy data. Inflation. The dodgiest data of the lot, how they measure inflation. <laughs> I mean, time and time again, they're relying on basing decisions on dodgy data. Now, and, and we're going to get, as MMT comes in and all the advocates for MMT and, and government spending in the, in, the, in the 20s, that's the next big one. Now, one of the reasons why I think you are particularly effective as an advocate for the free market is because you're a comedian. And I can't help noticing that in America, very many successful advocates for smaller government are people like Joe Rogan, who also have a background as stand-up comics. So I want to talk to you a little bit about being a comedian, what it's like being that rarest of things, um, a, a, a comedian who talks about the free market and taxation and is funny. Um, actually, there are an awful lot of comedians on television who aren't particularly funny. Somehow they seem to get commissioned to do an awful lot of things. Um, what, what about, what, where is British comedy at now? Well, we think of ourselves as a funny country, but I, <laughs> an, awful, an awful lot of British comedy is actually rather dull. Yeah, there's, there's so many questions there. And the, the first one I would say is about being a comedian who writes about finance. The comedy instills a discipline mm -hmm. on the performer, and it mm -hmm. is the discipline of clarity. Mm -hmm. If you are not clear and the audience Sorry. doesn't understand, you're stroking my dog, pick your dog up. under the table there. Oh, I just, let me let, let him, he's on his lead there, oh. let me let him off his lead. There you go, now you can pick him up. Um, yeah, bring him up. Frodo, come here. Frodo, we Frodo. can see. The viewers need to see Frodo. There we go, here's, here's Frodo, my <laughs> celebrated dog. But yeah, um, named after the greatest hero of all, <laughs> Frodo Baggins. The, um, I was going to call him Gandalf, but when we got him as a puppy, he just didn't look like a Gandalf, so we called him Frodo instead. I wanted to call my son Gandalf, but I was banned, so I had to resort to calling the oh, dog. Well, you could be like me, yeah. I was sent down with the, to fill in the birth certificate. <laughs> no, you could have fiddled it at the last minute, like they're doing in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. Who's to say anyone's checked? <laughs> So yes, but comedy instills the discipline of clarity on the performer, because if the audience doesn't understand what you're saying, they don't laugh, and the comedian dies. Yeah. And so 
that's that same discipline doesn't exist in the world of finance and to a lot of extent in the world of economics in the world of the civil service it, it often pays to obfuscate it pays not to nail your colors to the mast and so on and one of the reasons i think my books have been popular in my column and so on and probably why joe rogan and, and the likes are so popular in the us is that they put this kind of thing in a language that people understand they have to connect with the they audience. have to otherwise they don't get the viewers or anything yeah. i'm sure that's i mean i, I know You've had a rocky ride, the two of you, but I'm sure that's one of the reasons Nigel Farage is so popular, I'm, is that he puts complex political ideas in a language I, that people don't, understand. Don't get me wrong, whatever, I, I may have sometimes had one or two disagreements with Nigel, but in terms of communicating and communicating ideas, there's no one in British politics with his clarity and with his his ability to actually convey complex points so Yeah, so I well. mean, he just distills it and instantaneously, yeah. And, yeah. and also, where he stands on the issue as well. I'm sure it's, it's but that, again, that's why he polarizes people. Some people love him, some people hate him. And, but you can't afford to polarize people in big financial organizations. You have to sort of get out on with everyone. And so you have this sort of culture of obfuscation. Um, I, I think also part of it is that if you run a big, either government bureaucracy or a big corporate bureaucracy, you, you, you can avoid ever being properly held to account for making any any decision and you can sit comfortably within the group think you can spout the cliches of the day and you know you do rather well out of it so long as you climb to the top it doesn't really matter whether the organizations are successful well or not. I'm gonna dovetail from that straight into TV comedy because exactly the same thing happens with TV comedy is there is a commissioning process and the commissioner is like the TV comedy is a racket and people complain that it's owned by, you know, Ox, it's all Oxbridge, former Oxbridge people and it doesn't matter what, what uh, sex or colour they are, the important thing is that they're university educated usually from Oxbridge. But actually, it's, it's full of Wokies, isn't it? It's full of Wokies, but it's the business of TV comedy is ruled by two or three very big, very powerful agent stroke production companies. and. You can go, why is this guy, he's all Oxford, but it's always their people. It's the same people from these two agencies. The commission... So it's a cartel? Oh, total, total cartel. And the, the commissioners, I'm going to, you're sliding around, Frodo, but the commissioners do the same thing that, that civil servants do. They don't nail their colours to the mast, they don't take risks, they will commission this programme, they'll, they'll have whatever you know, at the moment, you, there's all sorts of directives that you have to have certain ethnic representation and certain amount of women and so on. So they will tick all those boxes and they will go, look, I went with through this production company. But, I used these tried and tested people. But, it should have been uh, So if it fails, the buck doesn't stop with them because they can, they've yeah, got all these but excuses. Talk about, talk about tried and tested. One of the biggest disappointments on British television at the moment is the revival of Spitting Image. Now, Spitting Image with these puppets was kind of funny in the 80s and it used to attack Tory ministers, the royal family and so-called establishment figures. But watching it sort of 30 years later, more than 30 years later, it, it's really quite disappointing because it's almost as if it's attacking the same targets. It's attacking Tory ministers, it's having a dig at the royal family, it's, it's attacking people who aren't really the cultural establishment anymore. And the people who are the cultural establishment, these sort of Wokies who believe in multiculturalism and the denial of science when it comes to gender. They're such a sort of 
obvious target and yet it doesn't attack them. It's, it's bizarre. We, well, this is one of the reasons why satire is so bad at the moment. And it's not... It's, it's, satire is not satirical. It it, really well, isn't. it isn't. And it's not for want of effort. You know, TV companies are throwing money at satire and there's loads of good satire on the internet. You know, people making their little videos and stuff. There's no shortage. When somebody hits a button, it goes viral within a day or two. But the, the reason that it's, it's exactly as you say, like it's fair enough that you should attack Tory government ministers because the Tory government is in power, but it's attacking them on the basis of tired old right-wing tropes. It should, the re, where it should be attacking the Tory government, satire, is the fact that the Tory government isn't a Tory government. It's a social democrat government and it's so terrified of the left that it panders to the left at every step and RNHS. Which is when did Conservatives give a toss about RNHS and suddenly it's like their big catchphrase. That's, the, that's what's funny. We're, sit, we're also sitting here in a western modern democracy in the capital city where we're surrounded by utter absurdities. People are being forced to, like sort of voodoo, wear masks that have zero efficacy. People are, people are being made to do all sorts of utterly insane and ridiculous things that should be being mocked and targeted and set Absolutely, up. but again, when you said the cultural establishment, the cultural establishment is, is very much of the left. And that is the, exactly who satire should be targeting. And do you know why it isn't? Because the cultural establishment is the one who's paying the bills. And comedians are not prepared to bite the hand that feeds them. It's that crooked. <laughs> what? And it's not just the comedians. You just can't get it on. If you've got wrong views, you literally cannot get a sniff of the telly. You can't. I have and to occasionally say. some production company going, oh, we want more right comedians, we want more right wing, or we want more libertarian, whatever, and you'll put a proposal in. But it'll never see the light of By the early 1970s, the Fringe was grossing more than the main festival. Um, and then about four, five or six years ago, the festival changed its dates to capitalise on the uh, extraordinary growth of the Fringe. And it's like, and there's the whole beauty of the Fringe is no one's in charge. It's just loads of performers going up there, acting out of their own self-interest. They want to either get noticed or practice their act or get better or just have fun, whatever the reason is. And it's one of the most incredible economic success stories. I've just finished making a whole documentary about it, which I'm currently trying to sell to the BBC. And, and we filmed it during the lockdown, a little bit naughty. Um, actually, we didn't film it during the lockdown. We filmed it just after that's lockdown That's your story ended. and you're going to stick to it. That's my story. But, <laughs> it but, was during the lockdown. Uh, but but uh, no, it, it really it wasn't. It, it was, it, we did it in July. But um, we did it in the year that the, the festival got cancelled but we can't, bloody BBC won't buy it. We've got Jimmy Carr in it, we've got Al Murray in it, we've got Henning Vane in it, all these big stars. What about, I mean, the obvious um, response to that from someone like me who doesn't know much about comedy or TV is, what about Netflix? Surely they are interested in the, what the audience thinks. Yeah, yeah, well, the problem with this specific one, actually Amazon Prime is probably the best for self-publishing. I, I love Amazon Prime, I'm yeah. on it all the time. Well, it, but for self-publishing docs, Amazon Prime is the best place, but you're competing with a lot of, there's a lot of stuff on there, it's very easy to get lost. The only problem with this specific one is because we, lose, we use loads of archive footage in it, um, because of, uh, you know, people giving talks in 1952 and old bits of, people's comedy acts from the 60s and 70s and 80s and we need a budget to pay for all that archive footage so we need a we need a, an established partner <laughs> now um we talked about your book we talked about the lockdowns and the absurdities of um the the, the way the government is trying to fight this virus we've talked about comedy um 
2020 has not been a great year for lots of people, but I think it's been a particularly bad year for the free market. We've seen you know, governments that were supposed to be on the side of the free market actually rather enjoy, I think, telling us how to live our lives and expand the size of the state. We've seen in America a Republican president who spent four years saying lots of things and, according to some people, doing some quite effective things, but not exactly shrinking the size no. of, of government. Um, where do you think we go from here as free marketeers? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really sad because you sort of thought with 2016, you know, the rejection of that sort of large state expert class after yeah. Brexit and also in America with the election of Donald Trump. And, you know, even though Donald Trump grew the state and he grew the national debt, he did tell the right people where to go. He wound up And he up did good things right in things like education. Sure, he did. And, and, and I think internationally he was a force for peace. If you look at what he achieved with North Korea and Israel and so on, he, he's... I mean, there are, there are enemies of Israel that have put aside their differences for the first time in yeah. 50 years. So he's done, he's done all right, um, if you can look past the bluster. But, but yeah, I mean, it, we don't know for sure, but it looks like Biden's going to be the, the, the next president. And he's just an old school statist, isn't he? He's exactly the, the kind of people that we were hoping to reject in 2016. But specifically about the UK, it's just this crisis has enabled the biggest land grab by the state, possibly that I think I've seen in living memory, worse than 2008. It's gonna happen through monetary policy, through the, the rise of the, the, the new epidemiologist expertise class. And Public health now becomes the excuse to do anything. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we're not going to go back to where we were. I remember when masks but, came in in March, I was thinking, what's the problem? You know, it'll only be here for a bit. And everyone's going, no, it won't. It will be permanent. And I really do think they'll be permanent. But here's another way of looking at it. And you, you go, and I, you watch, I was just on the tube yesterday. Uh, oh, no, sorry, not yesterday, day before yesterday. And everyone's wearing masks. And you're in the street and everyone's wearing masks. And I know that your people are wearing masks so as not to infect other people and so on. I get that. Um, whether or not they work or not, I'm just not qualified to say. And apparently the virus is too small, so it gets through anyway. But, but just the fact that you cannot make any kind, you can't build a relationship with somebody when they've got a mask on. So All true. you see is their eyes. You can't see them. So just people in the street, we're just suddenly, all, you know, a waitress in a restaurant or somebody, just people you have everyday encounters with people. I'm it's a barrier to. It's a. Uh, it's really isolationist. You're, you're so true. I, I've only just realised that I used to be quite a smiley person. Yeah. And if I walked down the street and I saw someone, quite often I'd make eye contact and I'd smile. Being, I do. Being in London, I tend not to say hello, but you, you nod. You can't do that one half No, of because I, I was walking past a guard on the tube and in that very situation. And I was like, why is she looking at me like that? Is he, does he think I'm skipping fares? What? Why is he looking at me like that? Underneath and I was there, looking at him, and I, I was trying to look at him. And we could have looked like we were being aggressive towards each other, and we could have been smiling genially. So it's a real antisocial force. Here's a countervailing opinion. Might this not actually help the cause of free market libertarians? Because people are now seeing what is meant by the nanny state. The government is doing things that mean that even the most apolitical person in the country realises that actually the government is often pretty clueless. Officialdom is setting itself up to be a figure of mockery and ridicule. 
might just not actually galvanise those of us at the argument for those smaller government. It will galvanise some of us. I mean, you, you look at Thatcher, and Thatcher pretty much won most of her arguments, and certainly she, she early was, in her. She was a response to the socialism of the 70s. She was. And she won most of her arguments, certainly until the poll tax. And then they used the poll tax against her. Well, actually, if you look at the intention behind the poll tax, it was to bring accountability to local government. Unfortunately, the, 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 local, the accountability of local government spending was attributed to her. But, but the, the, the intention wasn't so bad. Um, and, and it wasn't even called the poll tax. They only called it the poll tax to smear her with the old peasants' revolt thing. Um, which, by the way, was another revolt rising up against... Anyway, but even though she won most of the arguments and she was a force for freedom, the state grew and grew and grew under her tenure and under Ronald Reagan's. And it's, it's to do with... There's no restraint of money because we have fiat money, which is inherently inflationary, it grows and government has the power to print it and until we take away that power it will, it's just a monster that will keep growing and the other problem is tax so I don't even though we might win arguments we might win little battles until our system of money gets changed or our system of tax gets changed we are doomed. Do you know who I mean by Joe Overton? Yeah the Overton window. Yeah. yeah. Joe Overton very famously popularised this notion that politics is about what can happen within the perceived window of acceptable norms, the Overton window. I think that actually, just as Thatcher was a response to the socialism of the 60s and the 70s, this is actually a really exciting time to be a free market um, classical liberal, precisely because this incredible overreach of the state. If we get our act together, we can shift the Overton window massively. Maybe. I mean, I look at, I might just be my little echo chamber, but I, when I look on Twitter and I try and follow people with opposing worldviews and I read all the arguments, I try to avoid getting involved in them because it sends you insane. But for me, it might, as I said, it might be an echo chamber thing, but for me, the libertarian argument, the small state argument, the classic liberal argument, almost always wins. Whether it's Douglas Murray arguing about social issues or, or yourself arguing about technology or um, you know some of the Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. All, all those guys. They always seem to win the argument, and so people agree with them. But the, the state keeps on growing, and and the, the the nature of the left is as it loses the argument, they just get abusive. Yeah, and yeah. when I see that, so I, I agree with you that there is this Overton window, and we politely make the argument. But do you know what I think is a bigger hope for us? I just think you almost need to start new countries. So you've got projects like Lieberland in, in the Balkans, but I, you know, I'm, I don't know if you're a unionist. We did start a new country. It's called the United States. It's, well, it's the great That hope. worked for a bit. I mean, but even within the United States, you've got places like Libertarian places like New Hampshire, was this South Dakota didn't have any COVID no, laws I, at all. I think, I, I think you've been really defeated. I think we can, we can win this. This is what the state Are you a unionist or a, or, a, or a independent Scotland person? If I lived there, I'd have an opinion. I don't, so I don't. <laughs> okay. It's not well, my business. But it is your business because we're part of the United Kingdom. And, and, and actually, I think if Alex Salmond had opened up that vote to the English, because he said it's a matter of Scots and Scots alone, if he'd opened up that vote to the English, he would have got his independence. Uh, I think they lost and they'll lose again because they can't answer the money question. They can't answer the money question. But our biggest hope as, as libertarians is to champion an independent Scotland, let it get swallowed up in its socialist vortex, go bust and start again. And 
because I, I, I'm hoping that... How did the energy... land of Adam Smith become the land of Alex Salmon? It's so depressing. It's insane, but anyway. <laughs> but the, the, I, I remember we were, when we were filming our um, documentary, we were on the Royal Mile and we were standing by the Adam Smith statue on the Royal Mile and this Scottish man walked past with his son and he pointed to the statue and said, that man invented money. He carried on walking. It was a rather lovely moment. He, of course, he didn't, but it was nice that he's got this sort of thing that he invented money. Anyway, we. That's a good way of putting it. But we, uh, you know, I'm a big. I, I jokingly talk about becoming the first president of the independent state of Cornwall, and um, you know, but but and, and and a lot of libertarians I know are talking about more moving up to Northumbria, you know, on the on that and and you know, but I I one I do a financial game show. And one of the questions I ask. The audience in the game show and the the, the the right answer at this point in the game show is always my opinion and uh, if you get my opinion right you get to come on stage and be one of the contestants yeah. and then you actually have to answer and answer correctly but I asked this question which is preferable um, a United Kingdom uh, or a confederation of smaller city-states built along the lines of the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy and of course the right answer is the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy and Bags I, be Mercia and we well you, 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 yeah, it's, a, it's great great terrain problem is a lot of people want it and so it tends to get invaded <laughs> yeah. on all sides but it, but it is great terrain Wessex you see you've only got the reason why Wessex is they have fewer borders but anyway um, uh, maybe I don't doubt the Tories will even give them the vote mm. but but I think an independent Scotland could trigger a lot of opportunities I'm I'm gonna finish with the reason why I'm so optimistic you, you said we need to start a new country I'm not joking, I, I really do believe our forebearers did start a new country, the United States. And I think what they did in 1776 is what is ultimately going to rescue this. Because what's happened in America now is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. No one faction, as Madison brilliantly understood needed to be the case, controls the republic. It seems as if the Republicans have some majority on the Supreme Court, they may have a, a, a blocking majority just on the Senate. Um, there may be a fine balance, perhaps not really much control, a, a, a very narrow um, margin of control in, 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 in the House. Um, presidency, if Biden does become president at the end of January, he'll be president legitimately, of course he will, but he won't have that overwhelming uh, vote that Democrats only a few weeks yeah, ago were assuming. And, and Republicans can call, control Congress, which is good. And, so. and, and in addition, you've got these 50 states. So surely the obvious thing to do in America is to say, look, let's not decide everything at a federal level. Let's actually allow different states to do they things. They tried succeeding before and it no, didn't work not, out so it's well. Not about, it's, not, it's not about <laughs> succeeding. It's about what Wisconsin did with welfare in the 1990s or what Florida's done with school choice more recently, mm. allowing different states to do different things. So, you know, if you're a Republican, you don't need to feel that you've lost out just because you don't control the federal institutions in Washington. And if you're a Democrat, you shouldn't feel that, you know, your, your vision of what works in California needs to be imposed on Texas. That, I think, is, is what's going to rescue America. And I, I think you're going to see this great revival in the moral case for the free market in America. I think all the ingredients are now there for it. And I think that is actually what's going to... If only, Douglas, we had a confederation of smaller city-states in the UK <laughs> along the same lines, which is exactly what I was just arguing for. Two big problems, less so in America, but two big problems here. Firstly, in you know, when America rose up against their English overlords, American citizens were as well-armed 
nearly as their English overlords were. So militarily, they were of equal might, similar might. Um, we're not armed and our state is. So that is one major problem. There's just a huge inequality which makes revolution uh, 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 that much no, less but we're possible. morally armed and the we're state here armed. is morally disarmed. Yeah, but you, you see when it, when it needs to, it, it calls in the, the troops or it calls in the soldiers. So that is one problem. The next problem is that Americans withheld taxes. We can't do that because taxes are deducted at source. And that, so there's two huge levers of power that we don't have now. And, and until we can somehow get those, we have trouble. The third great lever of power of, that the state has that we don't is control of money and the ability to debase it. And as we go into um, negative interest rates and so on, that's another form of direct tax and taxation at source. Dominic, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And it's been wonderful interviewing Frodo too. <laughs> Thank you for Thank coming you, on. Douglas. Thank you for and, having and, me. And keep on making the case for the free market so humorously and so articulately. Thank I you will much. do my best.